I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. You know, I kind of happened upon Fred Tutman in an unexpected place. It was in the Smithsonian Folklife Festival, which was online this year. And he was part of a panel discussion on Earth optimism. Dearest Outside In listeners, meet Lizzie. Uh, yes, uh, my name is Lizzie Peabody, and I am the host of the Side Door podcast. As she just said, Lizzie hosts a podcast called Side Door, made by the Smithsonian. We sneak visitors in the side door of the Smithsonian. So we aim to tell stories from sort of the nooks and crannies that might be overlooked on a standard visit. There are so many nooks and crannies. Like It's made of nooks and crannies. Yeah. <laughs> totally. That's the whole thing. So often out here in podcast land, we hear stories that are just wonderful and that we wish we had done ourselves. And fortunately, the culture of podcast land is still very sherry. We can just bring it to you. So this is the story of a waterkeeper, Fred Tutman. I will not steal Lizzie's thunder because in the episode she lays out what a waterkeeper is and their fascinating history, which was totally new to me, even though I have interviewed several waterkeepers in my day. And I don't want to speak for him, but what he told me was that, you know, when you spend this long as a minority, a person of color in a predominantly white movement, you know, you do experience yourself um, as sort of a tool of a bigger, a bigger machine in a way. Um, you know, he talked about being called up, you know, being asked to go speak with a congressperson who happens to be black, who happens to be someone he never met. And, and this idea that, you know, his very presence in the movement was sort of a stamp of approval on its message and that that itself is usurious. And you know, how to be involved in a movement without feeling that you're being used by it. And this sort of grassroots approach is really what has enabled him to feel like it's, it's community built in a way that is lasting and durable and comes from sort of a passion for the environment. Um, that ground up approach seems to be what, what he really feels is most effective for his particular work. So without further ado, here's Fred Tutman, and we'll see you in two weeks.
is Side Door, a podcast from the Smithsonian with support from PRX. I'm Lizzie Peabody. You have no sense of civilization. There are sections of this river, you could be on the Amazon. I mean, this is no human habitation, obvious. It's pretty cool. I met Fred Tutman on a sweltering July day by the banks of Maryland's Patuxent River, about 30 minutes outside D.C. The water was so glassy I could see water bugs skittering along its surface. It was hard to tell the water was moving at all until a little leaf floated by. And some of this land is Smithsonian land, by the way. I'm pretty really? sure that there's a big ownership of Smithsonian-owned land along the Patuxent in this, this area. It's beautiful. Here, I'm going to dip my toe in here. Fred is a member of the director's circle at the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center. But his full-time job is Riverkeeper, with a capital R. And as the Patuxent Riverkeeper, his only job is to protect and preserve the Patuxent River, all 110 miles of it. But his love for this quiet bend in the river is personal. I mean, as a boy, this was our swimming hole. This was where I would hang out and do my little Huck Finn routine, you know. But I love this part of the river because it does remind me as a boy. Like, it's placid, it's peaceful, there's nothing threatening here. You know, granted, there are probably copperheads and stuff, but... What? You know. Hang on. Whoa. <laughs> Why did not... Was that not the first thing you mentioned? Well, they don't like us much, right? I mean, there are natural hazards, but people can shrug off a copperhead bite. Fred grew up on 200 acres of farmland just across the road from here. We sat down behind his farmhouse, in the shade of some poplar trees, beneath a chorus of enthusiastic cicadas. So, your title, Riverkeeper, sounds to me like something out of a Mark Twain novel. Like, I think of a grizzled old man pulling up and down a river, sort of patrolling its shores. How accurate is that? Grizzled old men, listen to you. You know what time, what's, what, what, what era are we in? Grizzled old men. I should state for the record you're neither grizzled nor old, so I'm already off base with right. that idea. Well, grizzled for sure, but at any rate. So from what I'm told, the term actually has its origins in medieval England, that, that, that there were fairy keepers, uh, lock keepers, various keepers. The keeper's job was to protect the commons, something that was shared by all, owned by all, uh, basically in public trust. So how recently has that idea come to this country? So it's a young movement in the scheme of things here in America. It started on the Hudson River in New York. In the 1980s, members of the Hudson River Fishermen's Association were mad that unchecked industrial pollution was killing fish and threatening their livelihood. I mean, they were really mad. And the legend has it that they were talking about blowing up oil tankers and creating mischief, not to harm people, but to draw attention to the lack of enforcement going on on their river. And this guy, John Cronin, they say, got up and said, we shouldn't be talking about breaking the law, we should be enforcing these laws. And essentially that led to him becoming the first American riverkeeper, whose job it was really to take down the polluters and collect a bounty. The idea was that you could split the fines with the government and invest them back into cleaning up the waterway. And it was a rather successful model. Bounty hunters for polluters. (laughs) Gotta like the idea. (laughs) That one American riverkeeper grew into a movement. Today, there are over 300 waterkeeper groups worldwide, 
bay keepers, creek keepers, channel keepers, bayou keepers, each protecting a different waterway. The idea is, with so many competing interests on any body of water, there needs to be one voice who can speak for the water itself. So you are the voice of the river. That, that's exactly right. We're the voice of the river. But the Patuxent River's voice stands out in one way. You are the only African-American riverkeeper in this country. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? It's very hard in these big conservation movements for people of color to be ourselves. People of color in particular have some discomfort being themselves in places where they're being measured against a yardstick that is defined by white being the norm. That's the most diplomatic way I I can really put it. The expectation is that this was not something that black people are supposed to be doing. And if we do, we stand in the shoes of white people, which is not necessarily the case. As you can see, I have a heritage with the outdoors that's quite distinct, and with this river. And if there's no room for that in these movements, then there's no room for diversity. Fred says, from the outside, what looks like a diversity problem actually reveals an environmental movement that is incomplete. And it's the planet that ultimately pays the price. We're losing this planet if we don't do something about the problems that are here. We need not only all hands on deck, but we actually need movements that are adaptable enough to embrace and serve all. This time on Side Door, Fred Tutman, Riverkeeper on his work protecting the Patuxent and his vision for getting all hands on deck to protect the planet before it's too late. Fred Tutman's family has lived along the Patuxent River for generations, and Fred feels a strong connection to this land. The family has a fair amount of pride that we're an African-American family that's been on the same land for many, many years with a deep heritage, both to the river and to the nature around us. So for us, this is our happy spot. This is my great-grandfather's farm originally from the 1920s. He was a guy that um, made his own liquor and grew his own tobacco and did all kinds of stuff. He really introduced me to a lot of these wonders. You know, it was with him I learned fishing and uh, hunting squirrels and walking with his beloved bird dogs, he called them, in the woods in the autumn. In the summertime, Fred and his siblings helped with the tobacco harvest and played and fished on the river. I didn't know where the river came from, to be honest. I didn't care, actually, because it was here. <laughs> it went that way and it came from the other way. But when Fred was about eight years old, his father moved the family to Sierra Leone for a few years. He was with the Peace Corps. And Fred says that's where he got really interested in rivers. And just observed how the river was the lifeblood of the communities there. That's how they got news, mail, food, you know, from place to place. The river was definitely the highway. So that really piqued my interest about what rivers are to humans, to civilization. We have all these fusions with rivers, all these connections to rivers. They're very complicated. That's why they write love songs about them, right? People love rivers for all kinds of reasons. <laughs> you know, I, I can't think of any love songs about rivers. Moon River, ba-ba-ba-ba-ba, old man river. Right, there's tons of them. Um, I stand I, I mean, corrected. I could, I could probably go for days. There's a ton of river songs. Fred Tutman grew up to become a singer. No, he didn't. He did not. But he did work with them as a music promoter. Traveled with the Who. What? Um, met Joan Jett. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, by the then he worked as a journalist. 
initially as a cinematographer, then as a videographer, then as a writer, then as a producer. So I had a really great career, but I was bored to tears in the sense that I couldn't fix or change anything that I saw. And that really began to gnaw at my soul. After two decades in journalism, he was tired of documenting problems he couldn't solve. So he hung up his press passes and walked away. So I just split. So now when I get on airplanes and I occasionally run into people I used to work with at network television, and they say, oh, I thought you were dead. Oh, my God, what happened to you? You were just gone. What are you doing now? And I said, well, you know, I'm the river keeper for the Patuxent River. I can see in their eyes now I'm really dead. <laughs> I am so dead now. <laughs> because it has no pertinence, no relevance to that old life. Fred wasn't exactly sure what he wanted to do next, but he knew he wanted to make change. And making change permanent often means changing laws. So he enrolled in law school. By this time, he was in his 40s, and he'd already volunteered with environmental groups since he was a kid. But he never considered that as a job option. Until one day... I actually was <laughs> skipping school. I should have been in class that day. Instead, I was in the Department of Natural Resources in Maryland. At a volunteer meeting. And everything was going pretty normally until this guy walked in the room. And when he did, Fred said there was an almost palpable crackle of energy. And I said, who's that guy? And they said, he's the riverkeeper on the seven. I said, what's a riverkeeper? And someone handed me the riverkeeper book. And for Fred, something just clicked. I, I need to do that. It was like a gnawing hunger. Like, man, I need to be the Patuxent Riverkeeper. I mean, I'd been an activist on this river already. I'd, it just never occurred to me you could have a, make a living being a full-time advocate. Within a year, Fred Tutman was the Patuxent Riverkeeper. He founded a small nonprofit aptly called Patuxent Riverkeeper, and he figured he would work the job for about five years. It's been 17. It's easy to imagine Fred as a sort of lone river ranger, patrolling the shores for litterers and other ne'er-do-wells. But he's just one guy, and the river is long. So part of his job is building groups of volunteers all along the river who can look out for it, by cleaning up trash and clearing fallen trees. But Fred says the river's biggest problems are invisible. Much of the stuff that's bad in these rivers you can't see. And so we're also fighting toxics, public health issues, uh, bad coal, Leaky wastewater plants, it's pretty vast. The proverbial death by a thousand cuts, that's exactly what's cutting these rivers to shreds. The Patuxent River is in rough shape. The University of Maryland's Center for Environmental Science grades local rivers on their health, like a report card. And last year, the Patuxent got a D minus. But Fred can't just sit polluters down for his version of a parent-teacher conference. That's why his law background comes in handy. The way you get to the boardrooms of America is you come with a pack of lawyers, whether or not you intend to sue. Mm. And that's how you're taken seriously, in my view. And these are serious problems we're fighting. And Fred has found out the hard way that being the voice of the river sometimes means being unpopular. You know, I've been socked in the jaw. I've been sued by You've polluters. been socked in the jaw? I've been physically attacked by the guy. You know, guys, people don't appreciate when you sue them over pollution. Believe me, they don't say thank you very much and send you a card. <laughs> Believe me, they, they get good and mad. We've had people mad at us for our litigation against coal plants. Someone sent me a letter once saying, would you stop suing those guys? Don't you know they buy band uniforms for the high school? Well, <laughs> well sure. Well, when you put it that way, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not making this up. I mean, but Fred is intentional about the kinds of cases he takes on as riverkeeper, not just because dental work is expensive. 
he's only really interested in cases that will bring lasting change to the river, like this one case from about 10 years ago. This was a fight initially over a box culvert through a stream, a headwater stream on the Patuxent River. And a box culvert is literally a mass of concrete. Basically a concrete tunnel that you can plunk down in a waterway and build a road on top of. And the problem was that the operators didn't have a permit to build that. They had a permit to build a bridge. And the difference between a bridge and a box culvert is, is huge. The box culvert essentially stopped up the stream. And caused a lot of ecological damage, basically resources we won't get back. The Patuxent Riverkeeper Organization sued the Maryland Department of the Environment, and the case changed Maryland state law. Previously, a person needed to prove that their life was impacted in a concrete way by the outcome of a case to have standing in a court of law. But the Patuxent Riverkeeper won the case on the grounds that an aesthetic interest was enough to give legal standing. Essentially, it's the difference between this culvert is costing me money and this culvert is accosting my eyeballs. And this ruling has lasting downstream effects for the river. The truth is the state will write much better bridge permits because of this. As long as people have the fear that they might be sued by Tom, Dick, and Harry over his aesthetic appreciation, whether or not he'll prevail in a court of law, I think it means you get a better system out of this. And that is the difference between transformative versus transactional work. That always changes a system. It means we don't have to fight that battle twice. Do you consider that case to be your greatest achievement as Riverkeeper? I don't know if that case is our best achievement. It might be our best legal achievement. I think our better achievement is that we have created a clubhouse atmosphere on the Patuxent River for the first time in this river's history where not only is all activism and all ideas for saving and protecting this river welcome, but all people are welcome. That we can have Muslims praying on the lawn, people from many walks and all walks. And that's not true everywhere. When we come back, Fred talks about his experience as a person of color in a white-dominated movement and how he believes, as a planet, we live or die by the voices we aren't currently hearing. More on that after the break. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. Yeah. Join me, Lale Arakoglu, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're back, and we're talking with Fred Tutman, the Patuxent Riverkeeper, on his farm in Maryland. Blueberries, other vegetable gardens, sweet potatoes on the hill. Ooh. We have an orchard up there as well. Blackberries are in season. There's definitely blackberry ice cream in the future. 
Fred Tutman has been riverkeeper for 17 years, and for most of that time, he's been the only African-American riverkeeper in the country. And this is a national moment when many Americans are taking a hard look at how our institutions have been shaped by white people. And the environmental movement is no different. Fred says it's time to challenge the status quo. Help kind of define the status quo for me so that I understand what a challenge to that signifies. I think the status quo of what an environmentalist is is actually drawn from our history as a movement, as educators. We're trying to get other people on our bandwagon, but also we're trying to instill in people an understanding and appreciation for nature such that they will make better personal choices. That's... That's one version. <laughs> That's one approach to I mean, this. all that sounds great to me. Yeah. What I've been trying to do with Patuxent Riverkeeper is distinguish ourselves from those movements that don't have people and compassion at the center. I think that's radical to conservationists who see these as pure nature problems. These are about saving oysters and crabs, aren't they? Well, sure, they're about that too. What about saving the people in these communities? In 2011, Fred Tutman wrote an op-ed that got published in the Baltimore Sun and a bunch of other papers. His letter pointed out the conspicuous absence of black and brown voices in mainstream environmental movements. It's titled, Take Off the Blinders, Why Green is Not the New Black, or Brown or Yellow. It starts like this. As an African-American and an environmentalist, I went along for a long while with the idea that race and class are irrelevant to the cause of environmental protection. I assumed that the environment itself is connective and bridges the social divide. But Fred went on to write he no longer believed this was true. So you used to believe in that prevailing idea that the environment could bridge the social divide. So what changed your thinking about that? Because the conversations I was having with black and brown communities tended to be very, very different than the ones I was having with white communities. Like what? I had a woman at a tea party say to me that this black community that we work with in the south of the river simply lacked zeal to protect the environment. She said, after all, I called my congressman. Why can't they? It was a narrative for why black people need to clean up those darn neighborhoods and stop laying around and loafing, essentially. It was a very bitter tea for me Mm. because I knew I couldn't fix that perception. Actually, it would be insulting for me to try. Fred says this thinking is based on a false assumption. If you cared, you'd do what I do. It's preposterous in terms of its lack of understanding of this system. In the United States, low-income areas, often home to people of color, can become what environmentalists call sacrifice zones, where a whole host of environmental problems become concentrated in a single area. Sacrifice zones, not only being places near toxic and unwanted facilities, but also places where people have a higher-than-average cancer rate, where their drinking water is unsafe. Fred says these zones don't form all at once. It's another case of death by a thousand cuts. You're right. We issue permits one at a time, but we don't look at these individual permits in the context of the other uses around them. Every decision is made in isolation, which is how you get places like this one community near the Patuxent River. Brandywine, which is getting, what, five power plants within a five-mile radius, plus a Superfund site, a coal waste dump, 
I mean, holy cow. And that's a predominantly black community. It is historically. I don't think anyone sat down and said, oh, we'll just put this in a black community. I just think systemically, places without a lot of power don't get consulted because the system itself disenfranchises them. Fred says calling your congressman only works if your congressman calls you back. And it's hard to get fired up about habitat loss for native fish when the drinking water in your own habitat is making you sick. I couldn't go with a straight face in front of a black community and say, you know what, y'all need to get some Priuses and some rain barrels and join the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. I mean, all of these prescriptions were not in sync with black reality. And I just couldn't do it. I couldn't talk out of both sides of my mouth. I don't have the answer of how you have a movement that serves all. But I'm going to stop pretending that one size fits all. I'm going to take off the blinders. So Fred wrote his op-ed, and it rocked the boat. I had a lot of pushback from that article. I had a couple of board members quit the next day. (laughs) Really? From the Patuxent Riverkeeper? Yeah. I think they thought I was racializing. I thought I was actually soul-searching. That was painful. Not as painful as being punched in the jaw, but... (laughs) (laughs) Now, the interesting thing was, a day later, four people of color called us up and asked, how do I get on your board? So overnight, the composition of the board flipped because of our advertising of our own position on this had the effect of really changing the organization's values. The Patuxent Riverkeeper organization may be small, but that enables Fred and his team to build a passionate local membership by staying focused on the specific needs of their communities. What do you all need? We'll help you with that if it's in the mm-hmm. environmental realm. You need help with your divorce? I eh, can't help you with that. I might refer you to a lawyer, but <laughs> I mean, these are very frank mm-hmm. conversations with mm-hmm. people about what they really need. Mm-hmm. Right now, we're working with a small African-American town, historically black town, on the Patuxent. Uh, the mayor told me on Friday that he wants help writing a grant proposal to get them a new dock. And we've done many of those types of transactions with towns and communities. But we're doing something the town wants done. Mm-hmm. And it does have environmental implications for the town. And that reciprocity, that's the engine of a long-term collaboration. A dock might sound low stakes. But that's kind of the point. The purpose of Fred's model is to be small and stay small. Actually, we're trying to create a very limited movement. We only really care about people who care about the Patuxent. As sad as that sounds, we only know about the Patuxent. And I think our members appreciate that. The word, one time I wrote in our newsletter a piece about how the Danube compares to the Patuxent. I got all kinds of crazy mail from people. Why are you talking to me about this European? <laughs> All right, I'll talk about the Patuxent. I get it. These are Patuxent people. Cool. Staying local doesn't mean neglecting the big picture. On the contrary, Fred says it's actually building a bigger picture. A global movement with strong roots has to start in everyone's backyard. Generally, globally, conservation movements aren't winning in a big picture. The idea that white-only movements are single-handedly going to save the planet (laughs) and and people of color are just going to be like a footnote. These movements need people of color badly. Building the green movement we need takes all kinds of humans. And Fred says, no matter who we are and where we live, humans have a universally powerful relationship with nature. Anytime in the history of humanity somebody wanted to find spiritual solace, 
personal inspiration, the answer to a difficult problem. They went to the mountain, they went to the desert, they went to the river, mm -hmm. right? And they unburdened themselves in front of that resource. And that was the key thing that brought me to this movement. And no number of angry letters, lawsuits, or punches to the face is going to keep him from it. They'll have to drag me out of here. <laughs> Someday. <laughs> they might. <laughs> You've been listening to Side Door, a podcast from the Smithsonian with support from PRX. If you're interested in finding out more about a riverkeeper or baykeeper or other waterkeeper organization close to you, we'll link more information about the Waterkeeper Alliance in our newsletter. Senior producer Justin O'Neill has already started a list of his favorite rivers that don't have keepers. So if his name disappears from the credits, you all know what happened. If you'd like to read the full text of Fred's op-ed, we'll include that in the newsletter as well. Subscribe at si.edu slash sidedoor. That's si.edu slash sidedoor. Special thanks to Kristen Minogue of the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center. And of course, to Fred Tutman. Our podcast team is Justin O'Neill, Natalie Boyd, Anne Kananen, Caitlin Schaefer, Jess Sodick, Lara Koch, Sharon Bryant, and Tammy O'Neill. Episode artwork is by Greg Fisk. Extra support comes from John, Jason, and Genevieve at PRX. Our show is mixed by Tarek Fuda. Our theme song and other episode music are by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you want to sponsor our show, please email sponsorship at prx.org. I'm your host, Lizzie Peabody. Thanks for listening. So I sat here on the edge of the dock, and there are lots of little ants. See? Yeah. And they all started crawling up my pants, and I was like... I can deal with this. And then at a certain point, I was like, I cannot deal with this. Yeah. <laughs>